Hello, Asao Inoue, or did, did I say that right or well Yes, enough? you did. Absolutely. All right. Welcome to Everyday Anarchism. So uh, I have you on the show today to talk about contract grading, which I have to tell you, Asao, I've never feel like I've taught a really successful class in my entire mm-hmm. career in which I wasn't using contract grading. I mean, mm-hmm. it just transformed my teaching and my relationship with the students and 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 everything. And um, I learned about your work from one of my friends and colleagues, uh, Jane Danielowitz, and she recommended your work to me and loved it. So I wanted to I wanted to have you on the show to talk about the way that contract grading, you know, in, in this everyday anarchist sense, empowers the student, removes some of the hierarchy and makes the class in like mutual aid in some way, if that if that framing sounds good to you. And if yeah. it does, tell us, tell us why. Yeah, I think, um, well, let me start by saying, like, I had a very similar experience when I first uh, started using contract grading. And I've, I've told this story before in different ways and different venues, but I'll just tell you, uh, re- recount it briefly. It's my sort of origin story of grading <laughs> contracts. Um, so mine, uh, mine was, I was introduced to grading contracts uh, um, uh, in about 2004, um, with, by, uh, Peter Elbow. Um, and I just happened to get really, really lucky. And, uh, I, I was a PhD student. So I guess it was 2003, I think. Um, I was a PhD student, uh, at, at Washington State University. And my, one of my mentors there was, uh, Bill Condon, who is, uh, retired now, but he was, uh, uh, you know, did lots of assessment work. And, and he happened at that time to be the co-editor of a journal. And he said, you should, put this, uh, this seminar paper, well, let's revise it. And you should submit it to the journal and, and they'll get it blind reviewed and so forth. And one of the reviewers, I did that. And one of the reviewers was Peter Elbow um, mm. and he signed his review and he offered this really lengthy review. Now my article that ended up getting uh, uh, published was on community-based um, uh, assessment pedagogy. I think that was the title of it. It wasn't contract grading. It, it didn't do contract grading, but um, uh Peter signed his thing. He put his phone number on there and said, I, after the review at the very end, he said, P.S., I'd really love to talk to you about something that I think you, that would work really well with this system. And it was contract grading. And I, and of course, I was just a graduate student at the time and Peter Elbow was telling me to call him. So I called him. Uh, and uh, it was a really, he was a super, super generous, nice guy. Um, and so I'm going to jump in here and just yeah. tell people that, you know, if you're not in the uh, literature and rhetoric and composition game, you probably don't know who Peter Elbow is. <laughs> but if you are in that game, Peter Elbow is an absolutely legendary writing teacher. I mean, when you sit down to take a class on how to teach writing, I cannot imagine that Elbow yeah. is not in that class ever. Right. That's how uh, that's how influential the, a figure he is. He was one of the first uh, uh, in the field that I was introduced to as well years before in my master's program. Um, so so yeah, so I was pretty starstruck um, by this, and he so he gave me a version of his. Uh, one of his grading contracts at that time, and I fiddled with it, and he gave me permission to use it um, in my classes, uh, and I started using it. At the time, it was a hybrid version that is um, not a pure labor-based like I do now, mm-hmm. which which it took me several years with experimenting and talking with students and thinking through and reading the literature to realize I need to move over to this because, one, it is more anti-racist, <laughs> and two, <laughs> it reduces some conflicts and some uh, contradictions in that ecology that assessment ecology that um, that the hybrid version creates um, by having a, 
uh, um, two kinds of judgments that count towards the grade. One being the judgment of, did you do this labor or work or not? I turned it in on time. And two, did you, if you want a higher grade, did you, is it a good enough quality according to my account of the teacher to get an A. So I, that never could um, sit well with me given the students that I was teaching at Fresno State and at other places before that, Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. And so I um, I quickly, uh, or I figured out how to change it and, and, and move forward, found some folks in the field doing work in like the early 70s and late 60s who were doing almost contract grading. They just weren't calling it that. And it was almost labor-based, but they weren't calling it that. Um, and so, but they published a few things in College English and I think C, the Three C's Journal. And um, it was pretty amazing uh, that there was a little bit of a um, history of this. And so once I did that, just like you, Graham, I found my classroom transformed in, a, in amazing ways. The number one thing that I found, even with hybrid contracts, the number one thing I found in my classrooms that changed was my relationship with students. Yes. It got so much better. And my relationship to their languaging and their writing got so much better. And in fact, I didn't, I stopped dreading the stack of papers because I yes. knew before I had the stack of papers I got to read. And then I knew somewhere in that stack, I was going to get upset. <laughs> and, and I didn't want to get upset. I thought that's not what a teacher is supposed to do. I'm not supposed to. They're, they're supposed to be able to make mistakes. They're supposed to be able to take risks and so forth. So, so that was a big bonus. And I, and I never turned back. I never, I was never able to, I'm like, I, how could, once I've tasted the, the forbidden fruit, I'm not going to go back to, so, so that was, so that was my introduction. And it was, and he was absolutely right in all the important ways. Um, we disagreed uh, down the road about a couple of things, but they, but in the important things, Peter and I agreed about this. And he was absolutely an important person in, in introducing me. He was the person who introduced me to contract grading. And so I, I am forever in his debt um, for that. So, yeah. Okay. So I think we've, <laughs> I think we've already jumped ahead a bit in terms of talking about labor-based versus hybrid and we have a yeah. portfolio. We're going to need to give people this language because again, sure. I, can, I can tell you at the last school I was at, literally no one had even heard of contract grading. So like, oh. it's, it's, it's so, you know, look, it's, sure. um, it's, it's insane. But before we do that, I want to say like, this is the transformative thing. And you're absolutely right. Like the thing I want to talk about is the way that contract grading does, does true inclusion rather than some kind of neoliberal technocratic numbers yeah. counting yeah. inclusion. It, it is anti-racist because it is removing the system of value in the teacher's head, which cannot be anything but suffused with racism and sexism and homophobia and ableism. We'll get to absolutely. that yeah. as well. But just for, you know, to proselytize, because there's plenty of professors out there who listen to this podcast. I used to have a friend who would say, you know, I teach for free. They pay me to grade the papers. And you are absolutely right, Asal. These students put their heart and soul into a paper if you do contract grading and you read it to comprehend, to understand. It re figured my relationship to my students' papers, the same relationship I had with the New Yorker. I would sit down to read, to learn something, to connect, sometimes to be outraged and rant about how I thought they were wrong or their writing was bad. But I do that with the New Yorker also. <laughs> and so not only is it a space that empowers students, it took my job from drudgery, everything but the grade, you know, everything but the grading was not drudgery, but the grading was drudgery. Well, and you know, there's a few other things. And all of a sudden, the stack of papers, 
I treated it like a stack of magazines that I mm. wanted to read. And I've never heard, I've never heard of anyone say that as out ever mm. who isn't doing contract grading, especially with, with introductory students who supposedly cannot do really good and interesting work. Supposedly, if you're like me and most of your classes have been students who are just entering college or a college type environment and they're just learning how to write, supposedly they can't do good work. That's bullshit. They can. And if they're not doing good work and you're a writing teacher, you're, you're, you're handcuffing them in some way. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, and I think also we have to get past uh, our ideas, our um, fairly limited ideas of what good writing is. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, yeah. I mean, I think one of the important things that, that a, a, a labor-based contract graded or even really most contract grading uh, environments or in ecologies can offer a teacher, not just the students, but what the, it can offer the teacher is a freedom from feeling, from not being able. And I'm, Think it's a freedom it's not just a limitation but it's a freedom from not being able to explore the other stuff that's going mm -hmm. on in the classroom you're confined to say i got this rubric i got these dimensions <laughs> i got these expectations they come from my discipline they're good i'm not arguing whether they're good or bad i'm just saying you got those and now now you have blinders on you can't see the other stuff that could very well be critical earth-changing stuff that's really important why wouldn't it come from um, an 18 year old why can't it? I think the only reason why we think it can't um, tends to be because we have already made that assumption when yes. we walk into those papers. So now I'm not saying that every single <laughs> first year writing paper is like, you know, something that we need to bronze and, and put. But what I am saying is that there's more than we think. Oh, <laughs> there's more yeah. Interesting. And and I think that, that students ought to be given that uh, that opportunity. That is that they if it, it's their languaging. And that's with them becoming right there in front of us. And yeah. even if we might have tread those paths uh, already as, uh, you know, as languagelings in the world, as teachers of writing, even if we've already, we know this, yeah, I've discovered that. And it's nice that they're getting it, but it, that's their learning journey. It, I just get to be, I get to have the privilege of, of witnessing it. Um, and, and isn't that a, 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 an incredible gift? I mean, I think that's really so what gets in the way of that gift and we, that makes us not see it as such, I think, is that we got to take our expectations and turn them into grades and then <laughs> rank all of our students and then tell some aren't going get, to get to pass or some get these opportunities, some don't get don't get other opportunities, et cetera. And so and that and then it sours our relationship with their language and them. And I think that's um, a tragedy uh, and it shouldn't it doesn't need to happen that way. And it doesn't have to mean. I don't think it means, at least it hasn't in my experience, meant that once you start go doing contract grading, that somehow you're giving away grades, somehow students aren't Ugh. doing what they're supposed to do. It's, it's, I've found absolutely the opposite of that. I mean, exactly the opposite. So, so that is not, and I don't think that's the case of just me having a strong personality. <laughs> I know that, that, that me as a, as a, a, uh, a, a male cisgendered, uh, you know, brown man who has a, a speaks in a very particular way and has a particular affectation um, in, in person and online. That yes, I have a strong personality in a number of ways, and that affords me the abilities to do certain things as a teacher with students. But everyone has their affordances, no matter who they are as a teacher. So. We just have to know them and continually work with them and be cognizant of them in our classrooms and know what they're going to not let us do and what they are going to let us do. So I'm not going to say that like every teacher can do what I do or what you do. Of course not. We have our own different ways of doing those things and we just have to find them and work with them. But, but I think 
what we're talking about there are um, are the the ways in which we enter as a teacher. We enter those spaces of the classroom, not the uh, the the ecology of the assessment. That is the assessment ecology itself. So how do we enter the ecology? That's one thing. How the ecology exists um, is a much larger thing. I mean, the yeah. people are only one element in this <laughs> in, in the seven elements I've identified in ecologies. Okay, so I've got uh, a dozen things to say in response to that, and we do. I do want to talk about the ecology, but we need to go back and just say, um, mm -hmm. please uh, tell us. You and I know what contract grading is, and that's why we sure. jumped ahead. But when you when you say contract grading, if someone says, "Hey, uh, Professor Inouye, what is this? What is contract grading?" Well, contract grading is a set of agreements that are made, and you don't have to call it a contract. Some people don't like that term mm -hmm. because it it participates a bit too much in capitalist notions <laughs> yeah. about like, you know, like, and I totally get that. However, I will say that I continue to use it only because I've used it before and we talk, and I, it's an opportunity for my students and I to talk about those connections mm -hmm. with, with uh, cultures and environments that use contracts between an individual and another entity. The contract in my classes is with the, the classroom. It's a social contract. So it's a very different kind of contract. Now, I could easily call it an agreement, mm -hmm. a set of agreements that we make with, um, with each other. It is not an agreement that the, that the student is making individually with me. That would participate in white supremacy culture, in my opinion. Um, and uh, folks, we can talk about that if, if you like. But but I use it as a way to have a social contract, which means when I'm engaging in, in my in the, in the contract negotiations with students and they're engaging with me, we have to make clear that our decisions and our thinking about what we are going to put down as the contract for all of us is social, meaning what's good for everybody, not just what's good for me as an individual who's trying to work through this thing, certainly what's good for everybody will be good for me because I'm part of everybody, but we, but I'm situated in an everybody in a group. And that's how I want us to have it because that then allows us to, I think, meaningfully uh, confront questions about competitiveness in, in educational contexts and, and, and grave grubbing and acquiring this and, and, and uh, working against the teacher or against students because you're always in competition with them. They are your competition in the grander, larger outside the classroom. But in this space, we're going to try to recognize that and critique it through thinking about grades in this um, in this setting. So it's a social a set of a social agreements that we set up in my class. We use labor based, but there's also hybrid based contracts which use both labor and judgments of quality on paper to determine final course grades. But what's uh, what is the same in both of those systems is that it it. The, the contract system uh, tries to take out as many, if not all, of the grades and rankings and numbers and letters in the day-to-day -day workings and practices and documents that are produced by students that are, we call learning as we can. In my class, it takes all of them out. And all the only grade is the institutionally mandated final course grade. <laughs> you don't want to get to not do that. And we have to determine what does it mean in terms of labor through the semester or quarter? How much labor do you do to equate, give yourself that grade, to get that grade? And what happens when you don't do that work? So when you don't do the labor in, and, and you don't turn it in on time or you don't turn it in at all and so forth. And that can mean different things. Like um, uh, in the last year or two, I've been uh, uh, teaching asynchronous online first year writing mm. courses. 
And they're different, obviously, asynchronous online course, different than just a straight online course or uh, in which you're having classes on Zoom or a face-to-face course. So, which of course I've taught all of those um, and used a grading contract in all of those. And they it's worked um, just as well in any of those settings. It's It looks different. Some things look a bit different because they have to, because we don't get to meet and so forth. It is, I will say it is easier to meet face-to-face and talk face-to-face with students and be able to have conversations um, about what does this contract mean and how does it change our responsibilities to each other and to our work and the labors that we do for each other and for ourselves and so forth. So, but that's the that's the the nuts and bolts of it. It is a, a contract. It's a set of agreements that students make with with each other and with the teacher that determine the final course grade, and that's all. And in yeah, my and, case, it's labor. And and in terms of labor, so so you can visualize this at home if you're so you're thinking about okay, what happens in writing class? Well, students are going to write papers. Perhaps mm-hmm. you know that's the only thing that's going to happen. But we also always teach writing as a process. So along the way, students are going to discuss papers, they're going to revise papers, they're going to write drafts, they might be doing some reading, they have to come to class, etc. And then you do all of this work, all of this work. And then the only thing that happens is just the papers sometimes get assigned a number between zero and 100. And then the students are all like, like, so I can just not do the drafts, right? And I'm like, no, you're required to do the drafts. I'm like, but you're not grading them. And I'm like, yeah, but... Um, so well, I mean, I think that's the that's the that's the danger of um, put point systems and letters yes. and number systems is that it encourages students if they're smart and savvy students. It encourages them to think about when they have to right um, when they when 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 time is of the essence and they've only got so much time, which all students do, <laughs> and they decide what can I not do and get the grade that I that's that I'm okay with in this class. So it's that old like how much can I not ha- not do and how quickly can I get that what I have to do done. And that's what that's often what point systems and letters and number systems do, because it says there's a hierarchy. This this assignment is more important than that because it's yeah. worth 20 points and that's worth 15 and <laughs> or whatever that or whatever the numbers and letters are. So, I yeah. And I think that's that doesn't go away magically in a contract system, um, but it does it, it does. The contract system does establish a more equalizing sense of like, an at least in my classes, an hour's worth of labor is an hour's worth of labor. And so what you produce will vary because we're all different and we all have different conditions that we live, that we learn in. And so let's try to uh, uh, accommodate that. That is, let's try to understand that and figure out what, uh, what's the best agreements we can come to. Typically in my classes, um, in a reading labor, for instance, like uh, it's not about finishing the chapter if it's mm-hmm. assigned a chapter. It's about, we agree that we're gonna do this many hours of labor in a week. And this is this portion of it. So we're doing, let's say we've estimated that it's two hours of of reading labor. That's what, spend two hours doing that. And then if you get halfway through, you get halfway through. So that means I have to adjust my, my pedagogy in class. So I can't assume that all of my students have read all of it. Just depends. And we find that out. But I've never been able to assume that all my students are even when I was grading. So I still had to do that before. So I'm still doing that. That you know what yeah. I mean? I was still. It's just I was. I was you know ex- expecting everyone to be able to have the same amount of access to time 
the yeah. day before, and now I'm not. I'm making it obvious. So, so this, if you to, to to make draw an analogy, which I'm obviously I'm doing with like the idea of political anarchism. So mm-hmm. when you tell someone that you believe in anarchism, they'll say something like, "Oh, so then we would just have crime everywhere. There'd be all sorts of <laughs> violence, and uh, people would be stealing constantly." And the anarchist response is like. Uh, I mean, yeah, probably, but now. like, but like <laughs> isn't that could, happening now? Could, could it really yeah. get worse? So when you say, oh, we're going to do this contract grading and the students just have to turn in a 900 word essay and then they will get at least a B if they did that and all the mm-hmm. stuff. It's like, right. well, you know, but then how do you know they're really doing their best? And like, well, you, 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 you never you, known that. Yeah, you don't know that. How do you know they're <laughs> yeah. reading if you're not giving them a grade for reading? Well, how do you know they're reading? <laughs> like, right. Like, all I think the, that, I mean, ahead. I think a lot, a lot of the, um, when I talk to teachers about their concerns about like those kinds of concerns about giving up that those things in their classes it's often it is often not always but it's often about giving up that control of students i've never it's just that i gave up a long time ago (laughs) i gave up my need to feel in control not just of my class but of my i don't want to control my students i certainly want to guide them and i want to create an environment an ecosystem, an ecology that is that encourages everyone to be able to do just exactly what they can in this moment, because that's all they get, right? So, and that we can all feel good about those labors and that learning. Um, that's what I want. So, and I think that can happen. And it may very much look like anarchy to some. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you um, early on when I was doing uh, a contract grading, this was at, I think this is at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Um, and uh, this was like the for my first job out, out, out of PhD. Um, and I was teaching a first year writing uh, course and a tradi- a, this, uh, one of my students came up to me after class. This is about week three, maybe um, in a semester. And uh, she was still getting the hang of the class. And she was a very traditional uh, A student. She was white and middle class. This was not the, the norm of the class. It was, uh, uh, there were, this was a, uh, probably half the students in this class were uh, African-American uh, and, and, uh, and they were all work. Most of them were working students and so forth. So this is a very um, uh, like first gen, first gen type class. She, she came in and she was a good student. She was very conscientious. And she came in and said, can we stop the 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 what did she how, what did she put it she she said it was the uh uh oh the, she said can we stop the circus like this is in like and i said and and she almost said it exactly that way and i said whoa first know your audience before you but let's tell me what you're what 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 you and she just couldn't understand she had a very hard time in a system that wasn't validating her at the yeah. top of the pyramid because that was where she was used to being yeah and and we talked about that a little bit and and i said give this just give it to the to the midpoint when we get to renegotiate our contract give it to that point and see how you feel but you got to you got to take it you got to give me some faith like you got to trust that I, that I that I know at least a little bit of what I'm doing, and that that this is going to work out okay. Like t- really try to make it work. She's like, okay, I will. And to her credit, she did, and she ended up being the biggest proponent of the contract system by the end of that semester. And she did wonderful in the class and helped her colleagues a lot. Um, and so it was, but it it took a little bit of of she just wasn't. She thought that a classroom was supposed to be this orderly place where I was going to tell everybody yeah. what the good writing was and how it was this this and that. That. And that wasn't the classroom that I, that, that I understand as being a, a one that's going to be inclusive, one that's going to be able to encourage critical thinking, one that's going to do all the things I think we want in a classroom today.
Yeah, again, the, par- the parallel to anarchism is amazing because people will say like, oh, well, it's going to be a circus. <laughs> like, No, like mm-hmm. actually the whole the reason why we have uh, hierarchies and governmental structures and all this stuff and contracts, like in, like the traditional business one-on-one contract right. is to create some form of order and harmony and flourishing. Mm-hmm. So what if I told you you could throw away all that shit and still have <laughs> harmony and flourishing? And they're like, but I don't want to try that because that just seems wrong um, there, you know i mean well, i will I, I cannot stress enough how uh radical this how radical this is and in one sense it's commonsensical i know in your mm-hmm. work you talk about um hey it seems like people would learn better if this were a home studio class like mm-hmm. think about how you learn if you're an adult how do you mm-hmm. learn like if your buddy is going to teach you how to do something there's not going to be grades and you can just right. like it, it makes so much sense but it cuts so deeply against the culture of standardization and, you know, supremacy. Yeah. Part of it. And I mean, just in that word, supremacy uh, is, is assumed a set of hierarchies, no matter what we're talking about, whether we're talking about race, talking about writing, those things are always linked together because it's language and language is always associated with race. And at least historically it has been. And so given that, I think we have to give shed as much of those hierarchical assumptions and values that we can. And that includes the practices of grading, if that's possible, or, I mean, I I know it's possible, but I know that it means dramatic changes in many institutions because um, they're based on grades. And let's, and let's be very clear about what grades actually do, what, what what they, what function they serve. They don't serve a learning function. (laughs) They don't help students learn what they, they don't even help students understand where they're at. We may say that they do, and they may look like they do, but they really don't. What they do is they serve an administrative purpose for for processing as many students as possible with as little information on them as possible, because that's an efficient way to move those students like widgets through the machine. And so I'm not interested in participating in that. In that kind of a sense, I'm interested in in helping students actualize themselves, figure out what they want, their own goals, and learn about themselves in the ways that they can in that moment. And in in my classes, that's usually around language and so forth. So that um, doesn't require me, I I think, to try to process students in in the in the most minimal (laughs) way possible. So and and besides, I'm more interested in creating uh, classrooms that are student centered not institution-centered or even teacher-centered. Um, and the second one, teacher center, is really hard because I like to talk and I think <laughs> I got some, some ideas. And, and I don't, you know, if you give me a question, I'll talk for an hour if you let me. Um, uh, and so that, uh, and so I've had to, over the years, and labor-based grading contracts have really, really helped me do this. Um, I've had to step aside and let my students learn I just had to get the hell out of the way. And it's really hard to get out of the way when everyone in the classroom is looking to you to fi- find out how did you grade their papers and, ha- and ha- what do you think of their languaging? And I, you, you, so you just can't get out of the way. There's no way to do it, really. You're always going to be in the way. And I firmly believe that most learning in, in classrooms uh, happens when teachers get the hell out of the way. Um, it doesn't mean they're not there. It just means they're out of the way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And helping and guiding is totally different from, totally you different. know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I want to just 
dwell a second on the the language that you've used. You're talking about white supremacy in a way that I think, you know, hopefully a lot of this work has been done, that white supremacy does not only mean the KKK and people in robes and whatever. And we we understand that. So I don't think you and I need to recapitulate that on this podcast. If you're bothered by that, listener, Mm -hmm. find Google Tanahasi Coates white supremacy and (laughs) and you're good. You'll you'll get it. But don't ask me to spell Tanahasi Coates right now because I can't. (laughs) But with that said, the white the, the white part should be obvious if you're if you're thinking about a language classroom like Asao and I we teach English and writing well it's English it's right it's right there yeah. in the name if you're going to get a grade it's going to be <laughs> matching the standards drawn from you know this is why you you, right. you take a class in America you take an English class in America what the fuck yeah. English and they like, oh yeah because you need to write well actually you're taking an English literature class and it starts with goddamn Beowulf. Right. It starts with Beowulf. Like, what am I doing? I'm taking a symposium on the culture of my people. And apparently, quote, my people is, you know, the Germanic peoples of Northern Europe. So that's the white part. And then the supremacy part is, yeah, grading. Everyone is going to be ranked in accordance to their place, to the the extent to which they cohere with the great Anglo-Saxon tradition of language. And and if you're a teacher, how can you not be? If you're someone like you and I who have gone through all of this teaching, all this learning in English geared that way, I was assigned Beowulf so many times, how am I not going to be part Mm -hmm. of that tradition right. and, and i think that's yeah go ahead i think that's the that's the struggle that we have as teachers because we that is our training right i mean you're absolutely right that that when we learn when most of us learn english as a discipline and then become <laughs> professors or teachers and so forth whether it's high school or college or whatever um we learn from those traditions and we have to be mindful and name those traditions appropriately so that we don't make the mistake of thinking that what we're teaching is something else, like some neutral conveyance of communication of ideas. It is not neutral. It is, comes from a group of people, actually a subgroup of, of a, from a group of people, <laughs> yeah. right, of, of language users. And, and therefore, and that starts the hierarchizing, right? So I always like to tell folks, like in a labor-based grading contract uh, classroom, they always ask, well, do you give up your standards and your expectations? Like, no, I don't give up any of my expectations. I still get to have them. I just don't have to lord them over of yeah. all my students. So they still get the benefit of hearing from my training and my background. But now I have to be more explicit about exactly where those things come from and what they mean and what the consequences are. If you want to follow my ideas, which you're not obligated to, but if you do, here's the consequences for you or for someone else in the world when that happens and it gets circulated. So, but it also means we got other resources in this room, other students who come from different language backgrounds or have slightly different ones that you get to hear from and you get to make authentic choices about um, that. One of my mottos in my classes, which I've repeated in other places is, good writers make decisions, they don't follow orders. So, uh, So a good reader like me shouldn't give orders. They should give thick descriptions of their experience of your text. So I'm going to offer a thick description. Who am I? How did I get these expectations? Where do they come from? How, I, how do I locate them in the text? And then you get to decide, how do I want to use that information as a writer? And then I put it next to these other folks. And then we get to actually problematize those language practices and say, how is that part of me? How is that part of larger structures in the world and histories? And what, what am I willing as a writer to, what am I willing to participate in? 
Am I willing to participate in that when I do this? Or am I trying to write against that and make my readers mad? I really hate, I hate this blind adherence to that's, that I hear in some cases in, in, in teachers. I don't mean to make that so uh, heavy handed, but I'll say it that way. Um, that some teachers think it's about audience, knowing your audience and writing to your audience as if audience isn't race, <laughs> isn't gendered, isn't historicized. And therefore what's appropriate becomes the most important thing, appropriate for that genre, appropriate for that audience. But we lose the idea of the fact that that's somebody's expectations. That's some groups. And that means we're still, we still participate in those white supremacist hierarchies when we do that, if we're not careful. So we have to be very careful when we do that. Okay. So here's what I want to do next, because I don't want to go on too much longer, because I want people to be able to listen to this all the way through, even though just like my students, I know that there are plenty of listeners who don't listen all the way through. And I, I accept that I'm not in charge of your, of your time. And I was not in charge of my students time either, despite that, you know, yeah, the, the, the social contract, we collectively decide the amount of time that we can spend a wonderful idea. So the next thing I want to say, you and I are writing instructors, first and foremost, and people tend to say, oh, okay, maybe this works for you guys but I couldn't use a labor-based contract for math or chemistry, but I actually took a class that was, uh, I mean, he wasn't calling it contract grading, but I took Calc 2 in, uh, in college in a way that was kind of done like this. Like I would invite you um, to think about if you are an instructor of any kind doing something like this, regardless of, what you are teaching. I want to see, Asao, if you thought also that this can, I mean, it's not going to be exactly the same, but this could be modified right. to teach, it, teach anything, I think. And, I, and yeah, of course. And I think I, I've, uh, I certainly have talked with and worked with lots of professors and teachers all over the country who have done exactly that, whether they've been teaching in STEM uh, fields or, you know, or math or, or, or physics or something like that, but, but far afield from writing and English classrooms. So, so definitely um, it, there are definitely possibilities in some cases where they just don't see the way. So like I can understand a chemistry teacher, for instance, or an engineering teacher saying, well, my my students have, they literally have to know these 10 things whether they're theories or whether they're some kind of formula because they're going to use those and they have to know them very well. And so, okay, I get that. I'm not saying that, that, that this it can work perfectly for that, for those kinds of situations, but I will say that there are other, um, uh, I'll say ungrading adjacent um, uh, practices out there. Uh, Linda Nielsen's um, specification grading, for instance, um, is a really good example of this that I think translates pretty well for those who are looking for a middle ground between what we're talking about here and something that's not uh, a ranking system that says ABC, let me grade this and so forth. So they can look to, to her work um, in specifications grading that does this, which basically says you, it's a toggle. You have to have these 10 specs that you, and then you move on to the next thing. And then if you acquire this many, you get this grade and so forth. Then you can do it in any number of ways, but, but in effect it does that. And it's sort of a middle ground for this. So I think I'm not going to pretend to be um, an expert on the pedagogy of physics or the pedagogies of, of uh, STEM fields, but I will say that most of those folks aren't experts in pedagogy either. So what they are is experts in chemistry. And so let's not confuse our specialties and that the knowing of something is the same as teaching it. 
just like knowing language ain't the same thing as teaching language. So my my uh, uh, training and research is in the teaching and assessing of language. It's not in in reading Beowulf. <laughs> I, I certainly can read Beowulf, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be able to say a lot of intelligent shit about it. <laughs> you know? So so I'm just so all I'm saying is like we have to be clear about what we really know. The problem that we often have as professors and teachers in any field is that we are so damn confident about what we do know <laughs> that we forget that that is a really bad substitute for, for projecting what we can offer our students and what will be guaranteed uh, for them in the future. So just because I, I I have had success as a as a languageling in the world and I'm a good professor and I've gone up, I've gone through the ranks and, and I'm a full professor and blah, 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 doesn't necessarily mean that I know exactly what my students will need tomorrow to be successful in, the, in their worlds with their goals and their and their conditions. I don't, but I certainly can offer some practices in an environment now that I think will help them today and, they, and ask them to think about those things as a habit to continually be mindful so that they can be ever vigilant of those uh, changing conditions in their lives. But I can't know. And so therefore, have me having some kind of arbitrary standards about it. Now, that's not to say that a chemistry teacher doesn't have some, some things they need to, they just know they need to, okay, I'm not going to argue that. I'm just going to say that, remember, knowing chemistry and teaching it are not the same thing. Um, and so, I mean, I can't tell you, but I got two sons who are in college now, uh, one, and they're in different fields. And, uh, and, and I know, I feel like I know better from the student's perspective about uh, uh, college students in math classes and engineering classes and such. I am not impressed. <laughs> with, with the I'm, I'm literally, I'm not in right now. This is a parent. I'm, I'm now got my parent hat on and I'm thinking about like, like, you know, part of me wants to go and, and, and call up these professors and say like, you're a bad teacher. You are not helping your students. Like forget about this one student that I'm, I'm most interested in, but let's think about all of them when you do what you're doing in your classroom. Now I'm not going to, I don't, I, I don't want to bad mouth uh, other professors because again, I, I'm hearing the secondhand from, from, from my, from my sons who are, who have their own interests, of course. <laughs> so I don't want to pretend like it is the full, but I will say like, I, you know, as an, as, as having been a previous associate Dean at a, a pretty large college uh, at Arizona state, I, um, I can, I, I, I know that when I tabulate the, the student complaints and the complaints about classrooms and the complaints about teaching, it is, it is slanted in not in favor of the sciences and the STEM fields. Um, uh, there are more problems there and it's pretty clear, at least to me, uh, what those problems are. And they have a lot to do with not training faculty in the sciences and STEM fields in pedagogy in the teaching of those things, because they obviously have other things that, that they have to care about, like to get tenure and, to, and be, be promoted, which has nothing to do with their teaching. And so they put that on the back burner. They put it on as a, you know. Yeah, another way that I want to talk about this is to take it back to supremacy, which is to say that the students have these problems with these teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing they can do about it, except write this anonymous thing at the end of the year which is this classic kind of like technocratic like now you're going to grade the teacher and then yeah. there's uh an, an, an associate dean who is going to grade them <laughs> and it's like like well let's build this enormous enforcement mechanism to make yeah. sure the teachers are good teaching when the people who have the knowledge are the students 
And a grading contract invites them to participate yeah. in the teaching of the class. And let me tell you, I've, I've worked at multiple STEM schools. The STEM people don't like the idea that right. the students are. I gonna, get it. I understand. <laughs> they want to, they want to make arguments. Well, what I've, the arguments I've heard is like, well, if you do contract grading, like you can't really do it in, in my field because they have to know X, Y, and Z very particularly. And I know what they have to know. And because, you know, bridges will fall down if you don't. And I want to say, like, look, a grade ain't never built a good bridge. Yeah. <laughs> what built a good bridge were people who learned some shit. And if they learned it and kept it and applied it. So grades don't do that. I, I mean, I you, think it, I mean, if your if your classroom, if your core structure, if your curriculum is so flimsy and so weak <laughs> that if you take the grading out, that all of a sudden learning stops and it starts to erode in these mad, mad, then you might want to rethink what you're doing in that class because that's um that's to me a bigger pedagogical problem, a curricular problem than because, but it also is what a crappy perspective to have on your students to think that you have to force and coerce them into doing the stuff that they and you know is good for them, that is learn the stuff in the course. So I I feel like, and I feel like students often react to, in good for good reason, react to the conditions that they're in. So if the conditions they're in mm -hmm. are coercive and untrusting, and uh, and so forth, like like grading systems tend to be, doesn't matter what the how, how nice the words are of the professor. Your words can be really flowery and nice and be real kind and soft spoken, but if your grading structure in the classroom is is counter to that. What do you think the students are going to do? They're going to listen to the grading structure because that's what's going to leave that they're going to, they're going to leave with. So, I think that that we uh, we have to be mindful of those kinds of factors when we do this because it's it it suggests bad assumptions that we have about our about our our, our students. I, what I prefer is, is to build a really strong pedagogically sound curriculum that is inviting and open so that. My students want to do more work. They want to learn. They see the value in it. And if they don't, they're just not ready at that moment. They're just not, and I can't force them to be ready. I mean, imagine if someone comes into a, an environment and they don't want to do the stuff in that environment that's required of them, like learn, and you force them to do it. You, you force their hand. They're not going to learn anything. They're, they're going to do exactly what they're forced to do and nothing else. And they're going to leave pissed off and, 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 and call you names. And you're going to feel crappy about having to force them to do it. And nobody wins. So I don't see why we have to do why I, I don't want to participate in that. You know, uh, I'd rather create an environment that's inviting and welcoming and open and, and shares um, power with students and says, let's do this thing together. And if you're not ready, you're not ready. That's OK. I'm not going to judge you on that. You got your, your journey. Heaven knows I flunked enough of my classes because I wasn't <laughs> ready when I was an undergrad. <laughs> you know, I mean, so. So, yeah, I think I think we have to be more generous with our students and more compassionate towards them. And part of that means sharing power and giving up some of the control that we think we need in order to teach them something. When in fact, what we need to do is give up power so that they have the room to learn. And that's a very different thing. That's the same as that get get out of the way, man. Uh, and yeah. I think I think it 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 comes it really does um, come back. Uh, I mean, it really does matter in the STEM fields just as much as in humanities and, and social sciences. So so I I, I don't I, I think that STEM fields are different in some ways. But I don't think they're as different as many folks think they are. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, so. You know. So I guess two quick notes about STEM and then we can move towards wrapping up. One, like John Dewey would say, hey, if you want your students to learn how to build a bridge, tell them that they should build a bridge and get them excited and they'll come to you 
begging. <laughs> They'll come to you yeah. begging to right. learn mathematical concepts because they're so excited about the bridge. It's like, mm-hmm. and who doesn't want to build a bridge? That sounds awesome. I don't know how that to build a bridge. sounds awesome. Yeah. But I would, I would love to learn, right? <laughs> right. The, yeah. the other thing is going all the way back to my experience. First year, first semester with a math professor who taught this way. This is for you STEM people so you can do it. He It was kind of a specifications thing. He said, "There's for Calc 2, there's 16 kind of problems you need to do. And I'm just going to give them to you over and over again. That's the exam. And uh, we're going to work on them between the exams. And once you've done what, whatever number of them, you've got an A. And if you do you know, between this number, then you've got to be whatever. So in that way, it was fairly it, it, it accorded with standard grading. And it was like a content-based thing rather than a practice thing. You have to know how to do this. But I loved it for the first time in my life. I but was, it was doing, but, but but you're right. I, but I think that's all. Was also a more generous system that allowed students to sit. To, it, it it was clear that it said you have your own pace, yes. and I'm not going to force my pace on you. So I'm just going to require you to learn these these concepts or these things or these problems. So I'll work with you until you get to the point where you can get to, and then we're then that's where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I don't so, know, yeah. I don't know anyone who didn't learn more mm-hmm. in that class, whatever the grade they ended up with than any of the other math classes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like learning is not the goal of college classes, as you've, <laughs> as you've said before. Yeah. Well, that may be the goal of the teacher to make the students learn. The goal of the student is so often to get a grade. And that's because mm-hmm. the goal of the, the class, uh, sorry, the um, university and indeed the entire system surrounding the yeah, university is to acquire is, those grades. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Grade them. I mean, grades, as you say, move the widgets to the factory. I like to tell my students grades are for beef, right? Grades are quality <laughs> control. Grades are like, make sure something is yeah. not contaminated. You yeah. guys are people. You are not a potential industrial. So, contaminant. And, I think, and I think the best way to offer that critique of grades in the system is to offer a new grading system in your class that confronts that problem and shows an alternative, right? So I always like to say like, um, the best way to understand today, socially or otherwise, is to look to science fiction because they're gonna show you a world that doesn't exist, but it could, good science fiction, it might exist someday, or it might offer a way to reframe the questions that we think we hold so dear and that we think we understand really clearly when we don't, all we have to do is say, there's change these assumptions, like, which is, that's what I think I like about um, science fiction so much is that it, it may, we, we buy into the idea that, oh, on different planets and different galaxies, <laughs> things work differently. And so now our assumptions have to be different, right? And we have to have an open mind about, okay, and it's wondrous and interesting and fascinating, but it, it ends up exploring the really important problems that we might be able to deal with here if we just changed our assumptions, like, like the whole idea of you, we've got to rank all of our students and they've got to, like, that somehow makes <laughs> makes for for a, a better university when they've got all these students who are ranked and they're ranked highly they're next to their their yeah. you know, their uh, colleagues or their um, institutional peers which i find just so hilariously um uh, ridiculous <laughs> like that is like my my uh, i used to say when i was at fresno state i would say this a, a lot um i don't say it so much anymore i don't know why but i used to say do you want an education you want a harvard education you can get a harvard education right here yeah. A Harvard education right here, all it means is how hard you want to work. How hard do you, how much work do you want to put in? That is the, that's the nature of education. You can have any schmuck go to Harvard and do nothing 
graduate do or do very little, just enough to graduate. And they didn't learn anything more. They didn't get, they're not going to be brilliant. They're just going to have got a, a Harvard degree that has some cachet in, in our, in our systems today. That's only because of the name. But if you want to learn something, you can get that anywhere. You can go, you can go to community college and get that. And, and, and that's because it has, it has very little to do with, with this, the college it has more to do with what you're willing to put into that. And the, and the orientation you bring to it, bring to that classroom when you come. So you decide. The problem today that I find, at, like at Arizona State, where uh, a lot of students are working and they have a lot of other uh, demands on their time, and they and the institution because the institution knows that the quicker time <laughs> to graduation means more graduations. So they encourage a lot of students to pack their schedules more so than I've ever seen before. Like I'm talking, I had I've had students this last semester who were taking 18, 20, 21 credits. Why would you take 21 credits? It's insane to do, and not not fluffy classes. They were taking hard classes that required a lot of labor. And I, that doesn't serve anybody but the university, in my opinion. Yeah, but the wrong. students the students think it serves them because they come from this achievement mindset, right. which has supremacy at its basis, which is yeah. another thing I would say, like yeah. you said, oh, hey, you might not learn that much at Harvard. I would go somewhat further and say, you know what Harvard is probably going to teach you? It's going to teach you to destroy the environment. It's going to <laughs> yeah, teach you probably. how to like cut costs in a business you might be running, which is to say, fire people. Like, I think the best well, case scenario yeah. at Harvard is that you don't learn that much and you come out of there kind of unharmed, but credentialed. I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to drag Harvard through the mud, but I will, but I will oh, I say. Do, I do, but anyway, <laughs> go ahead. But, but I'll say, I'll say like, if you, if, if you want to go to Harvard, then you should probably ask, why do you want to go to Harvard? Yes. Um, and, and if you can answer that question and still say I'm going to Harvard, then okay. Yeah. All right. Then you might be able to make some, just, just as that student who would go to Fresno State or somewhere else says, I want a Harvard-like education, which means I want a deep, good education yeah. that's going to serve me well and my community well. Okay, you can get that anywhere. So then that's the nature of your, of your, your choice at education. So great. Both of those, I think, can work. But, but yeah, you're, I mean, the difficulty is that usually on the front end, most folks who are, who are making that decision are making it because of those reasons that you're, they're, that you're like alluding at, which is, yeah. I want to succeed monetarily. I want to have a good job. I want to blah, blah, blah. And all those things are great and important. I'm not saying it's not great to have a good job. I'm just saying that usually we change our minds about what it means to have a good job yeah. as we move through our life. <laughs> I think initially we often think about it as money. Um, a good paycheck. And down the road, we realized down in maybe in midlife, at least this has been my experience with lots of my colleagues and myself, is that we ask ourselves, my job sucks. I don't like my job or I don't like what I'm doing. I want to change. I want to, I want to feel happy. I want to feel good about what I'm doing and how I'm contributing to the world. Um, and you can't feel the good about it if all you get from your job yeah. is a paycheck. So, so yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's all true. I would also just say, though, that for the individual players of this terrible game, if what you want out of your job is fulfillment and satisfaction, it still might be the best idea to go to Harvard because, because <laughs> in this in this supremacist society, it's so often the people, yes, the people who are like the most miserable and working 90 hours a week, they often have Harvard degrees or Ivy League yeah. degrees. But the people <laughs> who have the really cushy, you know, self-actualized jobs, a lot of those people have great credentials also you know what i'm yeah. saying like if yeah, you sure. if you want to be in a place where you can trade off money and prestige for like quality of life well it turns out 
they're looking for high ranked people also, even if there's yeah. a good quality of life. And that's usually the trade off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they yeah. can. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, this is a, this is a much but, bigger. But, but actually problem. it's well, well but it, 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 it speaks, I think, to the to what uh, grading contracts offer an educational environment, which is the currency in the market for good jobs is is salary, right? Like money and benefits. It's really boils down to economics. But in the classroom, the economics are grades. Yeah. And so 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 and so we've already found the root of one of the problems. Like <laughs> when you turn things into a ranked monetary or economic <laughs> system of ranking, then you get bad things and people start to 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 strive for and reach for those rankings or numbers or money and not for the the deeply satisfying life, the good things for the community, the all the stuff that that's supposed to represent, right? So, so it's it's this classic case of a student wanting the A and not realizing that the A is supposed to mean good learning right yeah. deep learning um which what which is what they should want which is what those uh, this the stem professors i was mentioning before is, yeah. are are assuming is a, a an a represents when a, when a bridge is built a bridge is only built when, when engineers are, are good learners yeah. a bridge is not built when engineers get a's it, it may turn out those things coincide <laughs> but if your system's set up so for you to acquire grades it, it is not a good system to do to to uh to guarantee good learning a good learning system is a good learning system and it's outside of grades um, or it should be. So, And then, I mean, this is why that you begin your contract with a thought experiment. Imagine the classroom isn't set up yeah. this way. Imagine society isn't set up this way. <laughs> it is, it is another world. It is yeah. another, another world is possible and contract grading will transform your system, your class into a little utopia, or at least I, it did for me. Yeah, thank you. And I, I often have thought about recently about changing that uh, some of that preamble to to ask a different thought experiment. Um, now I'm kind of a, a as you probably could figure out, I'm I'm I, I'm kind of a Trekkie. I'm 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 a Star Trek fan. You are you are and, you are in the right place yeah, here, sir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I I mean I thought like one one of my jokes with my wife because uh, we have Star Trek time right before dinner um, every night. And we'll watch one one star, some Star Trek, and um, I will. Uh, I, I always joke. I can always spot, like especially in Next Generation, I can spot all the technology that we that we currently enjoy right now. Yeah. I mean, cell phones, uh, iPads, um, all of them are used. I'm like, there, there it is. Yeah. They got that. It, it even looks the same. Like so, but but the the point I'm making is that that you know when you're in the mode of inventing a universe, um, it's. It, Star Trek is a thought experiment in many ways. I'm not saying there's criticism we couldn't level on it. We certainly can. But, but talk about but white supremacy. I, but anyways, go ahead. But I think that we can also think about like, well, if Star if Star Trek really were like, if we could really transpose some of those ideas about from, like that we might take from Star Trek to a grading contract situation. One thing we might uh, ask ourselves is in Star Trek, what's the how would that classroom really look? Is it really when you when they've already expressed like in next generation they already expressed we don't have any money. <laughs> that's not our goal when we get into a career. We don't. That's not we we get it for meaningfulness and fulfillment and helping you know um, uh, uh, explore the universe and and make make the world a better place and so forth. So I think if we have those assumptions, it's the same kind of assumptions that we can see in 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 in. Um, uh, there's a really great book that I read a, a couple of years ago. Um, by um, a, an indigenous uh, bot botanist. Um, Is it Robin Wall Kimmerer? 
That is her, Kim yeah. um, Amazing. Uh, uh, She's braiding amazing. Sweetgrass. Yeah, yes. braiding sweetgrass. Um, and so, but in it, she like weaves her own indigenous um, uh, uh, spiritual traditions and philosophies with biology. And, and it transforms, in my opinion, it transforms how you understand your, the person in the world and language and all of that. She even talks about it, about that, her use of language and how it is infused in her own indigenous um, uh, um, upbringing and philosophy. Um, and in terms of the capitalization of certain pronouns and, and such, because mm -hmm. of how that, how the assumptions about that make people su superior to plants and animals and the world. And then that allows us to, to rank them lower and then subjugate and yep. exploit. And she's saying, that's not like, that's not what we're, we, we have to be in a, in relationship with the world. Um, and I absolutely agree with that. And if we had, if we had assumptions like that or changed sort of decolonized our brains about grading and grades, we might, bring a, a different sort of thought experiment to every classroom when we open that up for the with, with students and figure out how do we stay in right relationship with each other and still give ourselves a grade? How do we do that? Can, can I do that if I'm in control? Can I have a right relationship with you? I don't think I can because now you're always thinking about how to please me. You're always thinking about, you're looking to me to get, I'm not going to be there tomorrow for you. That's what I used to tell myself. I can't stand over your shoulder and be the little homunculus on your shoulder and say, don't do that. <laughs> Change that. <laughs> you got to, you're going to have to do that. And you're going to want to do that. And the world is going to want you to do that. And so let's, let's try to create a self-conscious environment here that allows us to do that stuff together. So I that's think that's it. a wonderful, wonderful place to end, except I'm going to ask you, if someone wants to get started mm -hmm. thinking about contract grading, thinking about changing their approach, where where can they go? Well, um, on my website, I have a labor-based grading contract resource page that has a lot of stuff for students and teachers, blog posts, podcasts, and other things that they can that students can listen to and teachers can listen to, other resources, articles. They can also, on there, is, I believe, is also listed my book on labor-based grading contracts. So they can go to that, and that gives both how I came to the practice, um, what uh, undergirds and, and uh, is the foundation for my practice as a labor-based grading, as an anti-racist practice. And then the how-to, like what is a contract? What does my contract look like? How do I lead my students through it in a, in a semester? And what do we do with it? And how do we um, finish off at the end of the semester? So, and, they, and you should know that um, I've done this in first year uh, uh, courses, uh, second, third, fourth, and graduate. I've done it at all levels. It doesn't matter. I use I use the same contract. We just negotiate it. So the negotiation might look and, and end up differently, but it is the same. Um, the other thing I'll say is that um, that uh, some folks get uh, get uh, concerned uh, because um, the the examples that I give in my work uh, tend to be from universities and not from say something like community college, but I've mm -hmm. done this in, in, in those settings as well. And I know lots of folks who have as well. So, and they've used um, versions of, or template uh, contracts from, from my stuff. So it works there as well. In fact, I'm currently working with a large group of community and technical college uh, uh, faculty in the state of Washington to do exactly this. 
institute labor-based grading contracts in first-year writing courses as anti-racist uh, measures um, in the in the universe in 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 those settings, and to to transform that the the, the instruction of first-year writing and uh, and help the the students in that state. And then where the plan is after um, next year, hopefully if it's if we can show success in it, which I know we can, uh, we're hoping to get more funding from the state legislature of Washington to do something even bigger, which is expand it uh, out into STEM fields and to other um, uh, universities. The key though, the key in that project is mapping their assessment ecologies. Um, I can't under uh, underline enough how important this practice is. I, there's, you, you'd have to look at my first book to understand what an assessment ecology is, the seven elements of it, and then use that as a framework to describe, to, 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 to uh, we call it mapping, um, because it's an eco ecological metaphor. So we're saying to map the, the, your existing ecology so that you really know what's actually happening in your classrooms before you go about mapping a new ecology, an anti-racist one based on labor. Once you do that, then you start to see all of the problems, all of the good things and bad things and the things that need to change and your affordances and your limitations in terms of institution as well as a teacher. And that's, and it's really, really, an, it's not just an external uh, thing that you do as a teacher. It's also an internal knowing yourself as a teacher, like knowing, um, and it can be what we found in this uh, project so far is that we're, and we're, uh, we're about seven months in, um, we found that most teachers um, and most of these teachers, they signed up they, and they, they've had some experience or no experience, but some have some experience with this, with labor-based grading. And certainly they consider themselves anti-racist in their orientations, but they found um, deep surprises at how much they participate in white supremacy just by mapping. So it's a, so it's a really important activity that is not easy to do. It sounds easy. But it's not easy to do because you have to do some really hard thinking and really hard uh, admitting, <laughs> if you will, to, to go, okay, I think I may very well be, have been an agent of white supremacy and white language supremacy in my, in my classrooms. And I can see it in my, in my uh, that shouldn't be some sort of sh uh, marker of shame, right? It's, it, it, is, it simply is, we are all, as we started, we all have participated in some way because that's our history. That's the the history of the world. It's the history of the of edu of the education enterprise. So if that is, then let's be honest about it. Let's name it, label it, and let's see how we can dismantle and change change it. So in that sense, it's an uh, it's a project of anarchy. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's looking to dismantle all those things in a large scale. I, yeah, I agree. And then in in that sense, also, as long as it's a collective project, mm -hmm. it avoids the sort of Oh, we can pick on that person right. and see what's right. wrong with them, as opposed to we have all come up through this. You're, you're not right. te a teacher if you haven't, in some ways, been shaped exactly, exactly. by that system. Yep. Now we work together. This is anarchism, also. Now we work yeah. together to we make a new together. system, just like you said. Yeah, ex I mean, exactly. And so, and, and it, it, we really try hard. I mean, I've tried really hard over the last few years in all the pl places that I've worked with faculty to to emphasize that doing this kind of work, anti-racist work, anti-racist assessment work, um, whether it's designing, understanding, implementing, it's not about shaming and blaming individuals. We all got some blame and shame to take on, but it, that is not the point of this. It is not to say, look at all the bad people over there, right? Um, it is to say that there is bad, we work in bad systems and histories 
uh, and we can change that. <laughs> and that we 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 don't we we have if we understand our complicity and our participation, we can change that. And we can we might not be able to change everything, but we at least understand our affordances and boundaries, right? Like and and so we need to and we need to continually be on that road to do that. Otherwise, we can expect the same outcomes that we've been getting in the past, and those are not good outcomes. Um, and if you don't, and if someone out there doesn't think it, that we've had bad outcomes, then they're probably in a privileged group. <laughs> Right. And they've, and they've just turned their eyes and ears away. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, not only are they in a privileged group without a doubt, but boy, are they, are they not looking? They're, they're, not, they're not, not looking, looking very hard. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. True. Uh, but I think we all have a chance to do even those, you know, I mean, I, I have a lot of faith in, in people generally, no matter what their orientation is. I think that, it, you know, anyone can, uh, no matter whether they're conservative or whether they're whatever, or whether they're progressive or whatever it is, I think we we all can learn from each other and we all can can be better people. Um, and but we have to be on the same page about thinking about our histories and not simply celebrating the good stuff in 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 them. There's lots of great stuff to celebrate, but there's a lot of bad stuff that we all should should, should learn from. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so. Perfect. All right. Thank you, Asal. Thank you, Graham. <laughs>